You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It is August, and that means back to school. Between mask mandates, vaccine requirements, the Delta variant, and a lot of frustrated parents, cities and towns across the United States still have a lot to figure out before classes start. Still, most schools want their students in classrooms this fall and are pushing ahead with plans to reopen. This will be the third school year of the pandemic, and even though some hope that the days of remote learning are over, others think Zoom school in some shape or form is inevitable. Foxy's Anna North has been reporting on educators' efforts to adapt, and she's with us now to explain what Back to School 2021 may look like. Hey, Anna. Hey, thanks for having me. So COVID cases are back on the rise. The Delta variant is proving to be a serious challenge. There's even some speculation it could be more dangerous for kids since it's more contagious. So for obvious reasons, the conversation lately seems focused on how to bring students back to the classroom as safely as possible. What does science make of all this? Is a return to in-person learning the best option? And should we just bring everybody back at once? You know, most public health experts that I've talked to really have emphasized that they would like to see students in the classroom as much as they can be. There's been a lot of controversy about how well remote learning has worked over the last two school years. And I think the reality is it's varied a lot from place to place. But there are real benefits for a lot of kids in terms of being in the classroom. And I think folks think that it can be done safely. You just need to do it right. And that includes a couple of factors. One, obviously, is vaccination for anyone who's eligible. Unfortunately, kids under 12 are not eligible for the vaccines yet. We don't know quite when that'll happen. But kids over 12 are, so teenagers, and then, of course, teachers and staff. And then it includes masks. This is really the biggest thing that a lot of experts have emphasized to me that, you know, school can be done feasibly. It can be done in person, but there absolutely needs to be masking. And with Delta, which is more transmissible, you have to be even more careful. Now, unfortunately, those are also things that have been really politicized. So we can talk about that more, but that's kind of the lay of the land. Well, let's just talk about that now. How has politicization of vaccines and masks factored into things and complicated them? Even though experts are saying that uh, masking and vaccines are the best way to keep people safe, obviously we know that a lot of people are reluctant to get vaccines or even anti-vaccine and spreading anti-vaccine propaganda. And then, you know, perhaps even more important for kids who aren't able to be vaccinated yet, masks have been really politicized. Lawmakers in eight states, including Arizona, have enacted legislation banning school districts from implementing mask mandates. Governor Ron DeSantis issued an executive order this morning banning mask mandates. But today in Texas, the governor issuing an executive order banning some entities from requiring masks with violators facing a possible $1,000 fine. Now, some people say, oh, it's fine, it's just a personal choice, you know, my kid will wear a mask. But it's way more effective if all kids wear a mask, because that way they're protecting one another. 
And so school districts really find themselves in this bad bind where a lot of them actually do want at this point to require masks, but in some cases the state governments are banning it. And in your article, you mentioned that experts say that shutting down school buildings again should be the last thing people do. Why are so many districts so hesitant to close back down and offer virtual classes again? You know, again, not everyone agrees with this, but I do think there's been a growing consensus among epidemiologists, public health folks, that school is something that we should really try our hardest to do safely and that it can be done. We should think about shutting down restaurants. We should think about shutting down bars. We should think about shutting down gyms. You know, all these things that are hard to have with masks, for example, and all these things that, while, you know, they're important for our society, it's not something that's the difference between a kid learning to read or not learning to read. And I should say it's not completely just about the kids. It's been extremely hard for families over the last 16, 17 months to have kids at home and to be managing both online school and trying to work at the same time. That's taken enormous mental health toll on families. It's led to a lot of parents, primarily mothers, dropping out of the workforce. It's not like we want to put kids at risk in order to make their parents feel better, but schools are really integral to the functioning of society in all these ways, and we really want to prioritize them if if at all possible. Now, what about parents that don't feel comfortable sending their kids back to school? Are there remote options in different school districts around the country? There have been a lot of families who have not wanted to send their kids back to school, whether that's because of concerns about the virus, you know, perhaps especially if kids are immunocompromised, medically fragile. But also there have been plenty of families whose kids had a good experience in remote school. We've seen this with a lot of families of color, a lot of black families saying that remote school allowed them to be more involved in their kids' schooling, allowed their kids to avoid some of the experiences of racism that they saw in the classroom. So it's not the case that every family is champing at the bit to get their kids back into school buildings. And there are a lot of families that are asking cities and districts to keep offering remote options. That's been kind of a mixed bag. A lot of districts in the spring said, we're going to get rid of our remote options completely. Um, New York City was one of them. There were some others. Now, with Delta rising, we're seeing a lot of districts walk that back. Uh, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Miami, Houston, they've all said they're going to keep offering that virtual option. It's really kind of an open question how this is going to work in a lot of places. You know, for example, even if places aren't going to let families opt in to virtual learning for, say, a full semester or full year, what will they do if a kid has to be quarantined because of a COVID exposure, if they have to be home for 10 days or two weeks? Is that kid just not going to have school? Is there going to be a remote option for that kid? According to some of the folks I've talked to, a lot of districts don't know or don't have a plan for that yet, and it's concerning. So I don't have kids. I, I haven't had to do remote learning. Can you help me understand exactly how it works? In the beginning, my understanding is that kids had to leave school pretty quickly and teachers had to fire up Zoom and try to teach remotely. But I think that it's probably evolved quite a bit since then, or has it? Yeah, I think it's gotten a lot better over time. And it varies a lot from place to place. At the very beginning, it was a real patchwork. A lot of places thought maybe we're going to shut down for two weeks and, of course, you know, turned into months and months. In several states, every school has shuttered to slow the spread of the virus. In Los Angeles, the nation's second largest school district, with over half a million children, classes are canceled for at least two weeks. Nobody was prepared. People didn't necessarily know how to teach on Zoom. And critically, a lot of families around the country don't have computers at home or don't have the kind of internet access you need to be on video with your teacher all day. So there were a ton of tech challenges, some of which have kind of gotten ironed out over time. 
a lot of cities, including New York, have sent home devices, either iPads or laptops, to any family that needs one. There have been efforts to get folks broadband. I know some cities have had, like, you know, even sort of mobile hotspots like vans that will drive around with with broadband. There have also been cities that set up learning hubs. So if you don't have a computer in your house, you don't have internet in your house, or if you just don't have a quiet place to go to class in your house, because a lot of people don't, then you can go to one of these learning hubs where they're set up with computers, with trained adults who can care for the kids and help with their lessons, you know, and with uh, safety protocols in place to hopefully make these safer places for people to go. So there's all these ways that folks have adapted. But unfortunately, it tends to be that the districts with the most resources tend to have pretty good Zoom schools. And the ones with less money for training, for sending out devices, all these kinds of things are the ones that struggle more. Right. And like you said earlier, though, a lot of experts are saying that the best thing to do is to get kids back into the school building. What's being done there to make that more possible? Besides the the measures you mentioned, like masks and vaccinations, are there kind of infrastructural changes being made to the buildings to make them safer? So this is a really great question. Something like ventilation is sort of this unsolved problem of the pandemic where everyone agrees that the pandemic has really shown this light on how we're not ventilating a lot of our buildings particularly well. Our indoor air quality isn't as good as it could be. And good ventilation is really important in terms of stopping the spread of COVID-19 as well as just other respiratory viruses or viruses we haven't even heard of yet. But there's not yet a ton of research or standards in terms of what does great ventilation look like in the school context. So at least as far as I understand, there's not something like, oh, do these five things and then your school is perfect with regard to ventilation and completely safe. We know opening windows is great, doing things outside is great. But beyond that, I think there are some questions. Certainly there are a lot of schools with really, really old ventilation systems, and there are a lot of schools that just have old buildings, period. The good news is, at least according to one expert that I spoke with, um, there are some of those schools that have actually had really good success keeping outbreaks at bay by being really, really great about masks. There hasn't necessarily been as much innovation around school as there has been around other aspects of this pandemic. We see outdoor restaurants, for example, becoming a big part of New York City life and life in other cities, and maybe it'll even extend beyond the pandemic. There are outdoor schools, but we haven't seen it become as big of a phenomenon as you might think. We've seen more outdoor activities, I think, in daycares and in camps. And there are places like Los Angeles where you could plausibly have outdoor school through the winter without a problem. But I think sometimes folks can get a little frustrated that it feels like maybe there's been a lack of creativity in this area. And from hearing you talk about it in general, it sounds like a lot of districts are going into this school year with a lot of uncertainty. It even feels similar to the beginning of last summer when everything seemed uncertain. We didn't know what we were going to do. But how did this happen? Why do we still feel so unprepared? It's like a few things have gone right and a lot of things have gone wrong. Schools have gotten a lot of money from the federal government in the American Rescue Plan to sort of help them with reopening. The vaccines have gone right so far. On December 8th, I indicated that I hope to get 100 million shots in people's arms in my first 100 days. We met that goal last week by day 58. At the same time, schools still haven't gotten very clear guidance from the federal government in terms of exactly how they should reopen and what they should do. 
The president wants schools to open safely and in accord with science. And we are going to listen to science and medical experts. The CDC guidelines, we expect them to come out tomorrow. Uh, and we are eager to hear uh, more about the clear science-based guidelines for opening schools and how we can do that safely and how we can keep them open. The CDC has issued guidelines, but according to some folks I've talked to, they've been a little late, they've been a little vague. The CDC hasn't been the leader on this that folks would maybe want to see. At the local level, I, I think some folks feel that there's just kind of been a rush toward like, oh, everything's back to normal, everything's fine, which to be fair to local leaders, I think a lot of us kind of had that feeling. We all wanted to feel that way. And then it's also important to just acknowledge that the Delta variant is really transmissible. It's causing a lot of problems. You know, humans have not always been great at our response to this virus, but the virus has been really wily and it's changed its tactics a number of times. And so unfortunately, we're in the position of having to sort of change our tactics in return and trying to battle this constantly shifting foe. So it's it's a hard problem. I think there's a lot of reason to hope because people are working really hard. And I, I think there's a real sense of, of wanting to get this right for kids who have just had such a difficult time. But there are a lot of unknowns going into the fall. One last question for you. And I have to admit that throughout the pandemic, I've always been eager to find ways to be optimistic because that kind of helps us move forward. What are the chances you think that when all this is over and we've sort of returned to a new normal, that education will be better for it? I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic there. There's just been this renewed attention to things that have been problems for a long time. The pandemic has really renewed attention to educational inequality. There's been a lot more people taking a hard look at why are school buildings physically falling apart? How can we make that better for kids? That's the problem whether or not we have a pandemic, right? There's been increased attention to the fact that children of color are more likely to go to under-resourced schools, schools that are falling apart, schools that don't have enough money to hire enough staff. And so I'm hopeful that the pandemic will actually spur action in that area and move toward better educational equity overall. I think that's something that certainly we can strive for. There's also potential for schools and districts to continue using virtual school over the long term in interesting ways. There may well be an ongoing demand for virtual school and now we've learned a lot about virtual school, for better or for worse, so I think there's a chance to make it better going forward. All right, Anna, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. And thank you for listening to Rico Daily. My name is Adam Clark Estes. This episode was produced by Alan Rodriguez Espinosa and engineered by Melissa Ponce from Hemlock Creek Productions. Let us know what you want to learn more about. Email us at ricodaily at ricode.net.